Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for week commencing 2nd of December 2019. Pretty dull old week really in lots of respects. What should we start with this week? I think we'll start with all seed rape and tell you that its spot price is 320. The pound is firm and that is pushing our prices slightly lower. The actual rate price is holding firm in Europe, but uh, we have a strengthening pound at the moment. The latest poll is giving us a blue-coloured country, which is very exciting for people who like Brexit. So let's go on to feed wheat. Spot, 140x farm still. You can move it before Christmas for that price. I guess there'll be a premium for Christmas week, I don't know. There's been quite a lot of wheat trading. There's a few boats leaving Lower Stoft, which we are mainly helping with the supply of, which is great. And lots of wheat is moving out of future stores to go onto those boats, which is very, very strange in in our opinion. The people who bought it can do what they like with it, so they're, they're moving it, which means it's leaving our shores, but it's actually sailing around and going to Northern Ireland, so it isn't actually leaving our supply and demand figures, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about in a second because there's been a set of figures um, produced regarding next year's harvest. But I'll just whip through prices first, then get on to that. So feed wheat for May, 20, 145x. And for Nov 20, 149x. You know, if you really push someone and you're very close to a port or a mill, you might get 150. And if you want a price for Nov 21, 143x. Obviously, that market hasn't got the threat of a poor autumn and we will assume that it has normal drilling conditions and therefore it will be a half decent price. It should by then, if we do get a, a blue government, um, we should have left with a no deal Brexit and we'll be back down to uh, world prices with the tariffs. So maybe that one is worth considering on the basis of that threat. I don't want to get threatened by the government like Channel 4 has for putting an ice cube in the room instead of the leader. But um, one of the things that happened last night was the leader's debate on climate change. And only the Tories could possibly threaten to take away someone's licence and then pretend they hadn't the next day. So, yeah, all good stuff. Uh, Feed barley, 120x spot. Harvest, around 120x. Nothing exciting particularly about the old crop market. I don't see it going down. I don't see it zooming up. We are competitive on feed barley exports periodically, so there should be plenty of demand for it. But there is a surplus of malting barley, as we all know, and that's going to seep its way into the feed barley market. So plenty of barley still to trade. Don't see the prices changing much. Not very exciting. If your storage is in good nick, fine. If it isn't, don't mess around. So let's move on to this, um, these conversations about supply and demand. First things first, the AHDB came out with their projected crop size, or their most recent um, official release for supply and demand for the UK for the 1920 season, which is this year. And they reckon that we produce 16.283 million tonnes of wheat. We think that's slightly on the high side, but um, 
it emphasizes the point that we will have at the end of all of their usage figures a surplus of 2.9 million tons. Now if we've exported over a million between the start of the year and October, which is July to October, then we've still got a way to go and it isn't especially steaming out of the country as much as it should have done for reasons we previously mentioned about not knowing we could export until at the very last minute in October. So November's been a little bit busy, but not excessively so. And I would say that the point I made about the boats that are leaving the port Lowestoft are sailing around the British Isles and going to Northern Ireland, which still sticks within our S&D figures. So we have a surplus, which we've mentioned before, And quantifiably, if we move another half a million tonnes of export, which is fairly ambitious, we'll have a fairly large lump of tonnage left to carry into next year. So I I anticipate that happening. Interestingly, we're going to move on to Strategy Grains, who've put out production figures for the UK and for France. So let's keep with the UK at the moment. This is they've actually put a forward projection for the 2020 harvest, which is why it's of interest. If you take um, their particular figure for 2019 harvest is 15.98 million tonnes, so they are a good three, four hundred thousand tonnes underneath the AHDB's figure. That in itself is vaguely. You know, that's that's where differences of 400,000 tonnes can have a big difference to whether there's a big surplus or not. But their 2020 figure is 13.406 million tonnes, which I don't think there's anyone in the grain trade thinks it's over 13 million. So I would say, you know, when you get the old Frenchies predicting our crop size, you know, let's, let's remember they're French and they probably are judging this from their ski chalet. I, th- I would suggest that the UK's estimates on the basis of the recent weather we've just had yet more flooding yet more misery will be affected most not by area but by yield i think the yield uh, i think they've taken three percent off the five-year average and i think that is being far too cautious so i think we will see a sub 13 million tons certainly it's just how much lower and, and when you're down at that figure bearing in mind total domestic consumption is around the 15 million ton mark we need to import or we need to carry old crop across. And so that is confirmation of the fact that we're going to have to be doing either import or carry. And as I've mentioned before, at the moment, the carry, which is the difference between the price for old crop wheat in, if you are, if you were selling me July wheat at the end of the season, I'd pay you 150 for it. And if you were selling me November wheat, I'd pay you 149 for it. So there is a minus, there is no reason to carry it. It's got to go up enough money to justify sitting there and you not having the money in the bank. So that's proof if the strategy grain figure is correct. And I think that's kind of the debate on that is going to now occur all the way through the winter. And that what happens every single season, there's a whole lot of opinions and conjecture, depending on what someone's trading position as to what they think they should be talking about. In other words, if someone is very firmly long of the market they will very firmly talk the market down in production terms and if someone is is particularly short or they're a buyer for a, as a consumer they're going to start talking about the area planted and how the average five-year yield should mean there's a crop size of x 14 million tons or something so my point is that you have to be aware yourself of the dynamic of these things you have to do some homework yourself into production and potential production there's a a myriad of people you have as a support network in the farming community hopefully you've spread outside the county and you you know a few people in other parts who can give you an accurate assessment of what is going on and if, if you really get a very clear view that the market is going to be short 
then you have your own answer. You don't need a grain trader to tell you to hold on to it, or you don't need a grain trader to tell you to sell it. In other words, you should be in control of your assessment of which way the market's going to go, have your own firm opinion, and then be strong enough to debate it with some oik that phones you up trying to buy it. In other words, if they've got a story they're telling you, and you've got some facts, their story very quickly wanes into insignificance if you are knowledgeable. So brush up on your knowledge and do your homework. Anyway, with that very happy and uh, dictatorial old man type stance, uh, I wish you a very happy week's trading. And um, yep, let's see what happens next. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. This is an advert for our merchant listeners. The Norfolk Dinner is to be held on January the 16th. We have a new venue in the city centre, giving a much better experience, showcasing what Norfolk is about. Book tickets or tables via emma at dewinggrain.co.uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. This morning I've got with me Fergus Fitzgerald from Adams. Good morning. Good morning. And Fergus is the man that makes our Adams beer taste so good. He's the head brewer. So the first question I have for you, Fergus, is how on earth did an Irish lad end up in East Suffolk head brewer? Uh, Well, I came over in 1996, I think. But I came to a tempy job at Fuller's Lab in London, and that got me into brewing. So I'd studied biotechnology in Ireland, but I hadn't really sort of looked at brewing seriously. But there was this opportunity to go to London and, and do six months' work experience in the lab at Fuller's. Uh, so I took it and then just fell in love with brewing from there. So moved into brewing out of the lab, um, and then suddenly this job at Adnams came up as sort of assistant brewer. We had some friends in Norwich. Uh, we'd been up to Southwold on a, on a holiday, sort of by chance, sort of about a couple of years before that. Liked the area. So yeah, so we went for it. Just seemed like too good a job not to go for it. We knew Adams, we knew what they did, we, we sort of liked what they did, and it just seemed too perfect, really, to, to turn down. When people talk about Adams, I, I don't know how many people listening haven't ever been to Southwold, but if you haven't, I, I suggest you have to visit that place, because it's yep. unique. Yeah, and uh, it's one of those, I said the other day, I think, that Southwold is, is, a, is a lovely tourist town. One of the best things about it is there's nothing to do. You, you just walk you eat, you drink, that's it. There's no attractions, you just walk, that's what you do there. And that's actually one of the nicest things about it. So many other seaside towns have been sort of spoiled with attractions, but Southwold hasn't. It's, it's just this lovely, lovely sort of spot in time, really. Let's face it, behind those, lots of those twee little house-shaped things aren't houses, are they? Uh, a little bit, yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're, the breweries changed well before I joined. The, the breweries and the progress had changed. I think in the 1970s, they took down some houses at, at the back, what's called Church Street now. Well, actually, they kept some of the frontages and they added a couple of more frontages to make it look like a row of houses. Uh, but behind that is our, is our cask filling line. Because it's such a, a high cost, high high value mm. area. If you decided to move out, I mean, the yeah. real estate value of Southwold yeah. cottages and houses are unbelievably high, aren't they? Uh, yeah, and it's continued to grow over the, over the last sort of decade, really. Everyone, I think, involved at Adams sees the benefit of being in the yeah. heart of Southwold. If you if you moved out into a nondescript kind of modern, purpose-built, concrete, floored area that's yeah. really got lots of room for lorries to turn around. Yeah, something practical, you mean? The sole, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically, the, the, yeah. The, the, the pardon the pun, the soul yeah. would... Yeah, exactly, and that's it. It's one of the hard things to sort of justify in terms of, you know, you, you go with a sort of business plan as to why you want to stay in Southwold as opposed to build a new site outside. But it's one of those things you can't really put an easy value to, but it, we all know it has a value. 
we will always stay brewing in the heart of Southwold. Yeah, like, like with the warehouse, we moved outside of town. Those sorts of things can move out, but I think the brewing bit has to stay in the heart. Mm. I mean, I've, I've got to say, we, we were talking about the, um, you know, there's nothing else to do in Southwold. If ever you close your eyes and think, where would be the best pint of beer? And I'll say this to you now, for, I didn't say it before the mic turned on, my favourite beer is a pint of your, you know, Southwold Best Bitter. Your, yep. uh, because, you know, I, I can remember many a time just being there, going into one of your pubs, yep. and sitting there drinking on a lovely day. It's just, oh man, it's yeah. just the way to live your life, isn't it? Well, then you sort of taste, it's all to got to do with what's in your head at the time. So if you're, if you're sat in a lovely place, having a nice time, everything is always going to taste better. Beer is what you largely were famous for for many, many mm. decades, but you, you diverse. We've been through quite a long period of sort of change really so Adams has historically been mostly a cask beer brewery when I joined in sort of 2004 they'd always started the progress of sort of modernizing but the brew house the, the bit where we actually make the sort of well use the malted barley that was still Victorian really and then in sort of 2007 we up, we replaced that with pretty modern equipment really and then that left us a bit of space where what we call the copper house so where the old kettle for the old brewery were uh, that sort of space was left vacant and then Jonathan Adams had the idea of putting a distillery in there so we were then the first brewery to have a distillery on site in the UK because historically it was illegal to do that um, from going back to sort of how they used to tax alcohol and one of the nice things about Adams is you can make that sort of decision so Jonathan Adams can sort of say yeah, yeah let's go and put a distillery in and we do and, mm. and it turns out to be a roaring success well I mean there's several directions this is going to go in this bit of the conversation first things first the dynamic of inventing your own product you have to make effectively ethanol or uh, yeah we've got to make alcohol uh, but but sort of we already knew how to do that so that's what breweries do so you make alcohol yeah and then you said right what's the, what products are we aiming at uh, so it was really all about gin yeah, the, we've all, we all see the sort of craft beer industry boom in the last sort of sort of fifteen years or so. The same thing had sort of I think started to happen a bit in distilling in the US. There'd been a couple of new distilleries start in in England as well. So we've got the English Whiskey Company up the road yep. as well, and Sipsmith had sort of opened a distillery in London. So there had been a sort of trickle starting, but we thought it would probably get bigger. But also we thought if we could make the gin from scratch, which no one else really did at the time, mm. that would give us something different. There's been a revolution in the gin industry, yep. hasn't it? It's been crazy the last sort of 10 years, the growth in gin. Even today, there's only a handful of people who actually make the alcohol that they then make the gin from. Most people buy in the alcohol. So that gives us a bit, something a bit different, uh, something we could talk about to people. So I think the phrase everyone uses is sort of grain to glass. A lot of people don't know how gin is made in the first place, so it's quite a, it can be quite a difficult story. Yeah, which, which lead, I'll, there's a little sub subtract here. I mean, there is something to do in Southwold now. If you go and oh, yeah, book, you can book, do, yeah. book into the gin-making uh, process, yeah. we supply the barley for your uh, yep. distilling via Holcomb Estate, yep. via Port Malt. Um, we're part of the, uh, a four, group of four that supplies all of that barley, and it's a specialist stuff grown in Norfolk yep. to the right nitrogen level. It's, it's a very special product, and it's great to see it being made into something so specifically high-end. Yep. But any individual can book into the Adams tour. I'm going to yep. plug it for you, yep. for, Thank for you. Adams. It's really interesting, because once you've done it, you can actually become a real gin bore at a dinner party. The way we see it is we by making the alcohol from grain in the first place so whether that's barley wheat or oats or whatever it is that we can leave some flavor in the vodka and then that adds some flavor to the gin yeah uh, whereas that's that's something other gin most other gin sort of producers can't do we think it gives us an advantage in terms of the flavor profile you of won the enough gin. awards didn't you i think we won uh, the iwcs um 
uh, gin award and we've won the sort of best vodka in the world twice as well so we'd pretty good which is very good but it, i think that's a testament to the ingredients as well because yeah, that's the yeah, that's yeah. the thing that gives if you the started afresh yeah. and you and you had you know I, don't be all modest on me Fergus. it's good isn't it you, you actually <laughs> yeah no it's amazing newbies and yeah. and you won these awards yeah. with recipes you've invented yourself yeah and and found your way i guess one of the other nice things about adams is most of the time we're pretty open to learning new things so we're I think distilling can be a little bit of a closed shop, whereas brewing's quite open. Most brewers talk to each other. Uh, distilling historically has been a little bit more of a closed shop, so you sort of have to learn things yourself. And whiskey, that inevitably is yep. on the way, is it? Uh, so we've got some whiskey out at the moment. So we did release some at three years old, which is how young it can be before you can legally call it whiskey. The whiskey we've got out now is five years old, um, and if, I think the rye whiskey particularly is really good at the moment. Okay. Um, which I have to say because Jonathan Adams grows the rye, <laughs> uh, but it actually genuinely is really good as well. When you say, right, okay, let's do something different, whose idea is it? Is it yours? Sometimes it'll, it'll be a, a specific request for something. Sometimes it's just let's try this and see how it goes. Aging beer in oak barrels is pretty straightforward. We, yeah, can, but, we, can, mean, decide oh, gen- we can decide to do that any day of the week. So if you go back to Ghost Ship, the idea to do that was really just someone said, oh, should we do a Halloween beer? At the time, we'd sort of we, we'd had some new hop varieties in that we thought were really good, uh, and we sort of parked them to one side and said, yeah, "We need to, we need to find a way of using those." And then the idea for doing a Halloween beer came up and said, "Okay, that's that's our chance. Let's let's design this beer around around these new hop varieties." The world all of a sudden now is full of proper beer, isn't it? We had a, a long period where Adams were one of the only people producing proper beer, yeah, uh, and we had Norwich Bitter up here, which tasted like. <laughs> Like, what I don't remember like? Norwich bit. I do. It was gross. You could drink it all night long and not be drunk. <laughs> okay. And it was just, it was the same as the lager they had, but they had some brown, brown sauce mixed in to make it look brown. It was awful. Camera <laughs> existed or became prominent because yeah. Yeah. of the lack of taste of beer. Watney's Pale Ale, yeah. Double Diamond, all of these disgusting multi, you know, corporate beers that were being produced were tasteless and mm. just revolting. And then, you know, luckily, some brewers still yeah. kept going, didn't they? You, you being one of them. At one point, the way people thought they, they sold stuff, you know, drinks, food, whatever it was, was just to make it as inoffensive as possible. And therefore, it would appeal to the most amount of people and offend the least amount of people. Beer and, and gin mm. is actually kind of leading the way in, in provenance or, or people becoming actually aware of the product that they're drinking, hasn't it? This is a really yeah. good example of how the rest of the agricultural industry should... Be, be looking in the sense that you know when I was you know, sneaking into a pub at 14 when you weren't supposed to and old Charlie Nichols at the Hermitage mm-hmm. and Nagel would serve you yep. the guy in the corner of the pub had a trilby hat on a, a pipe with lots of smoke coming out of it and he was drinking bitter yep. and he had a beard yep. and I remember thinking to myself I'll never ever <laughs> like you know that is the uncoolest thing that ever walked the earth yep. the irony now is have you got I, a trilby well yeah well yeah <laughs> No, but the irony now is you go into it's not maybe the trilby's gone out of fashion now, but yep. you go into a pub and you see young trendy types with trilbies, with yep. beards, with vapes. Yep. Yep. So everything's the same, and they're holding a pint of beer. It's full circle. The, yep. the, the uncoolest of <laughs> uncool has suddenly become uber trendy. My point is that the discerningness, the aspect of like, let's just have an imagination. There is, yep. there is now people actually discerning, yep. saying, I like that, I like that, I think I feel like that one today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the same with gins. Gins have turned yep. into this amazing array of choice, and people have got their favourite gins, and they've got, they've got 80 bottles in their collection, yep. and it's, it's, I fancy this one today. That's definitively saying, right, I appreciate the differences. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just about alcohol. It, it is about the flavour. It is about more than just that, that, that little ethanol buzz. It puts pressure upon the major producers. Mm. In the end, it puts that 
chance yeah. for somebody who produces something brand new with lots of effort yeah. into actually providing them. If it's good, if it's really good, and you, yeah. you fine-tune it till it's really good, it has an opportunity or a chance to survive and produce enough sales. It does, but I think you also find now, obviously, the big producers haven't just sat back and, and let that happen. They're all fighting back, so you now see lots of different gin brands, beer brands that are still owned by the big guys, but you don't see it on the label anymore. They're trying to get that little share of the market by, by appearing to be independent. Mm. Um, and, and in the end, you know, if the flavor is good enough, then, then why wouldn't you drink it? But I think it's, there's also a bit of being honest about who's making it. Yeah, people are buying things based on thinking it's an independent small distillery in, in sort of the, on the North Norfolk coast somewhere, but actually it's made in the same place as, as all the other main gin brands are. Then I think that's conning the consumer there, a bit. Didn't I didn't. No. <laughs> but yeah, how do I mean your your business isn't you know an enormous business, but it isn't also a, a small microbrewery. It's it's somewhere yep. in that yep. kind of medium range if, if that's that, if that's the right phrase. Yep. How do you, f- you know, because you get tax breaks if you produce less than so many barrels, don't you? Yeah, we pay the full duty rate. So we are a little bit caught in the middle between the small, really small breweries and the, and the really big breweries. Uh, and I know people around, around sort of Suffolk and Norfolk probably see Adams as a massive company, a massive brewery. In the scheme of the UK, we're not. We're tiny. No. And people know us around here really well, but actually the rest of the country, we're probably much less well known. So it can be difficult, I think, to try and compete in that market because people want more local I think as well as sort of the provenance of where things come from uh, and flavour, I think people are also looking for more local. So that's quite a hard thing to be able to do. Mm. You know, you can't, you can't be local to everybody. No one fights your corner as a, as a medium-sized business, I guess. No, exactly, so you've yeah. just got to be no. quick, quick enough on your feet still yeah. to be able to... Yeah, and that's always quite hard when you're not a, a small business because you know, you've, you've got to ask a few more people before you make a decision. But one of the nice things, I guess, about Adams is you have most of the time you've, you've got the ability to make those decisions so you don't have to wait and pass it through another 40 people mm. and have 70 meetings to, to, to go and say yes we have put out a new cider recently as well so there, there is the opportunity to go and do different things outside of what we normally do inevitably that's got to be locally sourced apples with Adams no it's English apples right which isn't as common as you might not think not enough apples in, in Suffolk not enough of the, the ones we want we could have put in a proportion of Suffolk apples uh, but it would have been a sort of token amount and we didn't really want to go down that route so diversification Suffolk farmers here's your moment yeah you could grow apples no reason see, why not go and see Fergus he'll yeah. tell you the variety to grow yeah. he'll still be working in 20 years because he's a, he's a youngster yeah I've got a few years to go yeah, unlike me. <laughs> there you go. Nice apple orchard for Adams. Yeah. There's or hops. Anyone want a sick of hop fail? Yeah, here? we've had this conversation before. Hops. We <laughs> need UK hops. Uh, there's plenty of UK hops. We don't have any really round Suffolk and Norfolk. And there's no reason... I mean, the, the, you know, the, the soil is perfect around here. There's no reason why we couldn't grow them. We just historically... If you go back far enough, we did, but not, not in recent history, really. It's the process of the, the harvesting process that has to be dried. It's OK to be pelleted now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but you need to dry it before you pellet, pelletize yeah. it. Yeah, so there's a there's a bit of investment. That's always the issue. It, the the upfront investment's pretty pretty high, um, yeah. but the actual cost of hops that what pe- what people buy hops for now has, has come up dramatically in the last few years. So there's there is actually a business in there now. There's that field you're worrying about putting barley on for the nineteenth yeah. year on the trot. Yeah, let's have a field of hops, boys. Yeah. Now, in a minute, we're going to we're going to sample because you're here. We're going to sample. This is like Coles to Newcastle. Broadsides. Up. Pretty good beer at the moment. So we had a, we had some sampling yesterday. Uh, we can try the broadside if you want. You're the discerning department. I'm going to let you describe your own beer. You brewed it, so you okay. let's have a little taste so, of your your efforts. Okay. He swirled his glass there, everyone. You got to swirl to get the aroma. There's a difference between tasting and drinking. We're, we're tasting, are we? Swirl it, sniff it. 
we would say there's quite a lot of jam so character. The jam, the jam that sort of strawberry thing. jam. How do you get the jammy taste then? Uh, that's that's the yeast in this particular case. A bit of jam, a bit of chocolate, obviously quite malty. Yeah, I mean, a broadside is quite a strong beer, isn't it? Mm. So in bottle it's six three. So yeah, it's, it's a bit strong. Yeah, it's a, it's a hefty start for a Friday. Beer. You can have they have a half a glass. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. no, yeah. no, no, no. That's the problem, isn't it? It's it's a fabulous beer, as as is all your selection. So my favourite beer is the Adams Best. Yeah. But I'm not going to leave the rest of this glass. I'm going to empty it before the morning's out. So uh, that's its true litmus test. So, you know, it's, this is in the, the top echelons of our judgment. I'm, I'm already sold on, on the beer. One, because some of the time our barley goes into your beer. Yeah, as well, at least half it? the year your barley's going in there. Yeah, so, you know, it's obviously bound to be perfect with that Holcomb flavour. But, you know, it's already on the list as, as number one. So it's difficult to <laughs> say much else about it. Good. There's lots of brewers or breweries appearing even now there's more uh, yeah there's still more there's a few more shutting the last year or so than but there is still more opening i think it probably reached peak in terms of the total numbers i will do pretty soon i think so then it's down to who who can survive and who can who can last what's the number of barrels you're allowed to produce before you uh, i think it's about five thousand hectoliters where you get the first full duty rate decrease so what's that in pints God, i don't know if you've got a calculator Okay, now this is a point where I could pretend to do the maths quickly by coming up with the answer <laughs> to that. 5,000 multiplied by 100 and then divided by 0.568. Yeah, let's just think, all right, then, if you're really going to press me on it. If you want to know. I reckon the answer is something like <laughs> 880,281.69. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Could, I could be wrong with that. No, it's, I think that's pretty, pretty <laughs> accurate. Yeah, sounds about right. So you've had Paul Hoverson on before. We started working about six, seven years ago together. Yeah, I, I, I let's, remember let's, now. We, we have a we have a, a special relationship. This is a bit like America and, and the UK, <laughs> um, except this really is special in, in the sense that um, Bortmalt approached me and said, "I'd like a group of farmers to put forward a proposal to supply Adams with some um, spring." Very low nitrogen multiply. We need very low nitrogen, which is why we were approached. You know, yep. that David Green, who used to work for Bort Malt, came along and said, right, I want the best. I want really low nitrogen, and I want it to be consistently good year after year. And I had the quite outstandingly brilliant idea of not having a group. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, Paul Hoverson had just taken over Holcomb Estate. Yep. Holcomb Estate had two Adnams pubs, or the pubs were run yep. by Adnams. And call me brilliant, but there's a link there. And I thought, I know... When I went down to pitch for this, because other firms pitched as well, mm. I sat in front of a bra- very brand new lady who was doing the, uh, the the selling of malt for that company and the chief executive guy locally. I took with me a farm manager, Paul mm. Overson, and we sat there and pitched together, which, which was frowned upon a little bit. They, they didn't yeah. want there to be a farm manager in the room, but, but the pitch was there's a dynamic here where Holcomb is a, a very respected brand of malting barley going back for yep. a century or so it always was it's Holcomb Barley so by specifically saying here's an estate that can physically manage it we're just taking over running the, the, the grain store and we needed contracts to go through it yep. it ticked those boxes and we pitched it on a plate and yep. uh, and I understand they then turned around and, and pitched the same thing to yeah, you exactly yeah and um, as luck would have it it happened and the best thing was the relationship between Adnams and Holcomb was already in existence yep. and I kind of hoped that would strengthen it yeah, and, and and I think Paul was was, was amazing. I mean, he, he really, really sort of sold it. 
Well, he's incredibly persuasive, isn't he? He is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've recently been hovied, haven't you? Yesterday or the day before, yeah. But yeah, it's always a pleasure to see Paul. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But no, I, but he believes passionately in what he's doing, he, and, and the way he talks about farming is is exactly what we wanted, really. Yeah. So one of the, 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 the you know, once once you met Paul, it, it was quite an easy yes. That's what that's that's what we want to do. Well, the relationship's grown to to other things. I think I understand. Yeah. There's more coming along the way, but the dynamic of then. Some years we've had very difficult seasons yep. in, in the north of the, of the county, and mm-hmm. two years ago the nitrogen levels were wrong. We yep. were all in a field, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. And I famously predicted a nitrogen by rubbing it out. You did, Joe. You're pretty good at that. And it? it was spot on, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Poor old Kosh. <laughs> <laughs> There's not many who can say, yeah. this is going to be 1.73, yeah. and then go to the lab, and it was. So yeah. I, the nitrogen levels were higher. The 1.65 aim that we're going for wasn't being achieved. Yep. And... Um, there comes a point in a relationship where you could turn around and say, no, that's my line. Yep. And you were, you were able or you were prepared to or you, I don't know, what, you, you didn't hard-nose the whole situation. No, but I no, think, we uh, so I think the, the point about the relationship, it should be flexible on both sides. So I think historically some of these sort of relationships have fallen over because people have been too hard-nosed and, and not flexible in accommodating because we all realise that the barley will be different year to year. You either allow for that or you don't. And if you if you don't allow for it, then you can't have a, a one-farm supplying. That's just not going to work. You can't probably even say every year that you'll always use English barley. Sometimes you'll have to use something else. We want to be true to that, actually working with Hoke and working with mm. Suffolk, Norfolk farms, because we, that's where we want to take our grain from. So if that's what we want to do, then we have to allow for some variation in the season. In a year like this one... Mm you could buy it massively cheaper because there's a massive oversupply. Farmers produce 25% more than they thought they were going to. And there's a surplus, a massive surplus. Lots of it's going to end up in the feed bin. So the contract has has benefited the farm yet again. But there'll be a moment when, you know, there's been a couple of times in the relationship where the price has been higher because there was no low nitrogen spring malting barley that particular season. Yes, you adapted, but the price of the damn stuff was way, way through the roof. And it is uh, the best thing is that both sides have been very happy with each other first. I mean, and, yep. and the also ran merchant, which is me, and the also <laughs> ran kind of brewer who are doing a very good job at what they yep. do. The most important relationship is ultimately yep. the direct connection between growing it and then taking it straight yep. to. Yeah, and that's what we want. We, when we first talked about the contract, we wanted. So we'd always said it was Norfolk and Suffolk, and that was and that was pretty easy to do most years. But we wanted to take a step further and actually know who was actually growing it yeah. and have that direct relationship. Because people who are drinking the beer want to know where their beer is coming from. It makes sense that we should know where all the ingredients are coming from and actually have some relationship. Yeah. And, and, and understand the process more. We all go for walks around barley fields once a year just to have a look and get, 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 a, get a bit of a picture. <laughs> no, I go for the lunch. But it, <laughs> I, I, I missed, in fact, this year I missed you the walk around the barley yeah. fields. Like, yeah. yeah, you didn't even get it. I went straight to the yeah. <laughs> straight to the pub <laughs> but at least ah. at least having that direct relationship with Paul you know if there's an issue you can talk to him about it he can talk to us about it the other way around so it is more than just a piece of paper handing over a, a, a specification saying just oh, make, yeah. just make that let's make absolutely the more personalized it can become the better for small businesses like mine and you know it keeps us alive and, and aware of provenance stories exist or develop or grow and relationships grow and yeah. and that's that's exactly the hope we cannot all become corporatized. 
Anyway, with that, I think um, we, I could talk to you for the rest of the day, I think, Fergus. It's great of you to come all the way across to no, Wales. All right. I'm glad you visited the uh, ivory towers of our recording studio. No, it's a pleasure. And, Thanks uh, for the beer. And I hope now uh, you'll <laughs> listen to one of our podcasts. I will, I will. I'll definitely listen to this one, obviously. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewandgrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewandgrain. The Dewing Grain Podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio. 